my assignment for this series known as Summer on the Mount. And so, this portion of the lesson Jesus taught has to do with blessing our enemies. And I chose to call it enemies. You gotta love them. You do. I didn't say that. He did. So buckle your seat belts. We will have a little bit of turbulence. There are no parachutes and nobody will open the door. But we will land safely because never does God give us counsel about who we are. It should be without him giving the capacity to help us. So if you look on the screen, you'll follow as I read. We will learn of the text. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. You say amen to the word? Before you're seated, I always covet is a strong word, but that's how I feel about you praying for me. I covet that. I've never preached so many sermons for so many years. I feel I can do it without his help. You've never heard one either that you could not absorb it without his help. Let's do it together. Point your hand, or, or reach your hands in this direction. You pray for me. Would you do it a little bit of a whisper and I'll hear you and then I'll pray for you. Father, we have come to what is known as the bread of life. We've come to the living water. We've come at the feet of Jesus. And I pray today that all of us would give attention to your word. I pray against distractions. I pray against the attack of the enemy. I pray against thoughts beyond this house. We know we got places to do and things, oh God, places to go and things to do and people to be with. But we are with you now. We are in your house. We're with one another. Break in among us and break us, God, and fill us with you to the overflowing. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Over the years in ministry, I have often felt as though I had the gift of making enemies. Now, I can't talk about your line of work or your personality type, but perhaps you feel you have that gift too. I do know about me, so I'll, in the introduction, just give you a little bit of this so-called gift that I don't want. Note this as we start. Many times it is the little things that have the potential for creating enemies. Little things. Now, here's a... Uh, is my partial list of ways 
that I have made an enemy whether I knew it or not. As a minister, in fact. I have made enemies whether I knew it or not by what I said or didn't say. By what I believe or do not believe. By what I preached or did not preach. I have made an enemy or enemies during counseling sessions by my suggestion or advice. Usually when I spoke to the spouse who's having problem with their spouse, the people speaking to me, the person who comes to share with me why their spouse is so mean and hateful, they come across like they're the angel. And then when the wife comes, the husband comes to see me, he acts like she's a sister to the devil. How do you handle that? I have made enemies or an enemy by a phone call I've made or by my failure to make one. In, in the business of ministry, you're called upon to make visitations, hospitals, homes, prisons, other places. And I have made an enemy, not meaning to whether or not I went to visit because someone has wondered, he doesn't care. He doesn't call, he doesn't come by. Unfortunately, I've made an enemy or enemies by what event or persons or holidays I recognized or failed to do. I have made an enemy about people who I've given the opportunity to sing and those that I did not give the opportunity to sing you have to understand that I saved you from a lot of pain <laughs> by people I didn't allow to sing. I've saved them from a lot of pain. People have been angry with me and said some negative words because I didn't shake their hand. Then this one really makes people hot is the, uh, the offering. I don't like the way I received the offering. I don't like what I said. And you know, the, the older I get, it seems like it, I don't give a flip about what they think anymore. <laughs> They're probably stealing from God and don't, don't like me. Yeah. And here's a, here's a real hot button if you're a pastor. It's politics. Because people assumed something you didn't say or thought of something you didn't think of or people heard somebody say something you didn't say. And by, by the things I will share with you this morning, I am pretty much convinced that I'll make a few more enemies. Get in line. Now, unfortunately, people have become enemies. See if you grasp this. People have become enemies with those they once vacationed with. Enemies with people they went to church together with, dined and ate together with. People have become enemies with uh, Facebook friends until one of the friends became two-faced. Family members have attended gatherings of Christmas, Father's Day, Mother's Day, Thanksgiving, etc. 
because they became enemies. People used to enjoy attending sporting events together and talking about their favorite player, et cetera, et cetera. Now, because something was misinterpreted, they, they don't talk that way anymore. They don't even talk. So I've defined to you how I've consciously or unconsciously acquired enemies. And so I have a question that's answered in Scripture that I believe that you will concur with. And here's the question. Who is your enemy? Matter of fact, I want to do something a little lighthearted. So don't make me an enemy before I finish preaching. Bow your heads, close your heads. It's a lighthearted thing, okay? Close your eyes, bow your heads. Uh, how many are pretty sure in your life there's somebody out there that don't like you? And maybe, maybe uh, they call you an enemy. Uh, how, how many of you raise your hand? Okay, put them down, please. How many of you sitting beside that? No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> keep, keep your head bowed, your eye closed. How many of you have a few people? And, and just be transparent. We're not videotaping this. How, how many of you uh, have a few people you don't like? Yeah. Thank you. I know I'm speaking to the right crowd. Because some of you are either coming or going. Some of you don't even know whether you are. So if you're taking notes, note this. Who is your enemy? Jesus defines such. Anyone who curses you. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, part of our text. Jesus says, bless those who curse you. Whether they curse you to your face, whether they curse you behind your back, whether they ask somebody to curse you on their behalf. That would be your enemy. Secondly, anyone who hates you. Luke chapter 6 verse 28. Jesus says, pray for those who despitefully use you. The word spite can mean hate. Anyone who hates you. Who is your enemy? Number three, anyone who uses you. Matthew 27, verses 27 through 30. Here is a narration of the crucifixion of Jesus. How did they use Jesus? The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrins, the Romans used Jesus carnally for their own gain. They used Jesus politically for their own gain. They used him religiously to make his Life and ministry and effort of no consequence. Anyone who uses you. Who is your enemy? Number four, is anyone who persecutes you. You might recall in studying the life of Paul, who previously was called Saul, that Saul was very zealous for Judaism. Sat at the feet of some of the greatest intellectuals learning. Spoke several languages. His passion was to defend the faith. And here comes some folks along the way who ain't got no college education, been no seminary, who talks about Jesus. And folks are following by the hundreds because this Jesus died in their place, rose from the dead, and proved himself to be God. And Saul made it his business to seek out these Christians who before were known people as, as people of the way. Christianity was known the W-A-Y before it became known as Christians. And, and he would bind them 
will have them bound with ropes and chains and drag them to the court of trial. He even stood as a witness at the martyrdom of Stephen. I would say that that person would be our enemy, persecute you. Now, in the course of our our time together, I want to share with you four things, four thoughts from this passage about loving your enemies. Number one, Jesus teaches us to return good for harm. Jesus cites Moses, not by by calling his name, but he cites Moses' theology in Matthew 5 and 38 when he said, Moses taught that we should return harm for harm. Moses taught and passed down to the Jews in Matthew 5, 38 again, where Jesus says of Moses, he taught an eye for an eye theology. In Leviticus 19, 18, he gives a brief departure, Moses does, and he says, Love your neighbor, but he was really referring to the neighbor being their fellow Israelites. He returns to the thought of harm for harm. In Deuteronomy 23, 3 through 6, he tells them to hate the enemy who is the outsider. He tells them, hate those who do you harm. And here specifically, he was talking about two groups of people, two nations, the Ammonites and the Moabites. The Ammonites and the Moabites were descendants of Lot who did not give the Israelites food and water in their time of need and their journey from, uh, from Egypt into the promised land. But, but the Ammonites and Edomites sought to hire Balaam, the prophet, to curse the people of God. Balaam didn't get the idea that God is not going to allow him to curse his people. So God used a talking donkey to correct Balaam. Balaam talked back to the donkey and it makes you wonder who was the real donkey. Because of this Israel is commanded, uh, Moses said, never to act on the well-being, and the good of our enemies. Moses tells the the, the people of Israel in their attempt to take over the land after the Moabites and the Ammonites try to keep them out. Moses said, you shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. So, So this is harm for harm theology, a pattern of eye for eye. It's where Jesus gets the phrase, you have heard that it was said, hate your enemy. But Jesus changes this this theology after laying out Moses' position. Jesus said, you have heard it's been said, but I say to you, If you have an enemy, don't hate them, love them. If someone persecutes you, don't curse them, pray for them. I like Jesus' theology more than Moses. Amen. 
Now, here's where the rubber meets the road. Jesus said, you have heard it said, but now one greater than Moses has come to you and is saying, but I say to you, I like the fact that Jesus has the final word. Should in all of our lives. Here, write this down if you're taking notes. If you're not taking notes, pretend you are. Jesus is calling us to a higher standard. Jesus is calling us to a higher level of obedience and as a result, blessings. He says, even though someone harms you, return good for evil. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 3 and 9 echoes the words of Jesus by saying, Do not repay harm for harm or abuse for abuse, but on the contrary, repay with a blessing. After Saul's conversion and he came to be known as Paul, he wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 15, See that none of you repay harm for harm. But always seek to do what is good, or good to one another and to all. Jesus calls us to a higher way. You might recall, and, and uh, if you don't recall this, I'll be glad to put it out there because it, it's the word of the Lord. David, who later became king of Israel, anointed by Samuel, came into favor with Saul, first king of Israel, because Saul had times of inner turmoil, times of what would seem like an attack of the devil, restlessness, insomnia, Chaos in his emotions. David was sought out by the servants of Saul to come and play his harp and instruments of music to soothe Saul, and it did. The more David accomplished that goal for Saul, the more David came in the favor of Saul. And so David began to be a part of Saul's entourage. He eventually was given leadership in the military, eventually fighting in the army, leading soldiers. And God was with David so abundantly that he exceeded Saul's capacity to do what Saul is accustomed to doing, a warrior, a fighter. The people begin to herald David loudly and largely because of the results of his efforts for Israel. Saul became immeasurably jealous of David. So on five different occasions, Saul premeditatively tried to kill David. Every time David, David fled. In this course of trying to kill a man who was not his enemy, his advocate, David, David had two opportunities at least to kill Saul. David's comrade and followers in his branch 
of military leadership said to David, kill him, you have a chance, man. We'll kill him and therefore you won't be pronounced guilty. So, so why don't you do it? And David's response was, I will not touch God's anointed. I will do him no harm. And, and, and so what David was doing is returning good for harm. Here's another uh, clip of David's life that intrigues me about this subject. After Saul died in battle, his son Jonathan, God elevated David to be king of Israel, second king of Israel. Now the country was without war. The land was producing well. David had a large army in waiting and servants and much food. And he thought about this, God brought me here. And he asked of uh, one of his servants, is there not anyone left in the house of Saul that I can do good to? You might think that David wants to seek out people out of the house of Saul that he might kill them. And Ziba, one of the servants of the now deceased Saul, said to the king's question, Yes, there is one out of the house of Saul who is the grandson of Saul and the son of Jonathan who was your very close friend. David said, Go get him, bring him here. He was lame in both feet. He became lame because during a time of war, uh, his, uh, his keeper, his, uh, the lady in charge of his care, his nurse, was running with haste, trying to take Mephibosheth to safety, the son of Jonathan, the grandson of Saul. And this nurse fell down and as a result caused injury that crippled the Mephibosheth. David says, come on in. He said... Uh, are you Mephibosheth? Yes. He bowed down to David. David said, you will sit at this palace table and you will eat the meal every evening that I eat. I want to bless you on account of your father and account of your grandfather. He said, a matter of fact, you're not only going to eat at my table, but I'm going to give you every bit and every acreage of land that belonged to Saul who tried to kill me five times. Now, if that isn't good, blessing bad, I don't know what else is. Here's another thought, please, of this business of what I find from this text. The, the teaching Jesus is giving here is a contrast between incomplete and complete. Verse 48, uh, the scripture says we will be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. Now when you think about that in the natural, none of us can be perfect. But when you look at this in the interpretation of the word from the Greek to English, the word perfect can also be translated as complete. Here's a, a, a definition, though maybe not the best, of these two words, incomplete love. Incomplete love means loving only certain people. Those who are in your group and those who do good to you and those who bring you coffee and donuts, Starbucks, they pay. I love them. Oh, yeah. 
Uh, this ain't in my notes, and I may regret it, but I already got a few enemies. Why not add a few more? Do you ever know when somebody else is paying, like when you're paying for somebody else's food, how heartily they eat? Man, I, I'm preaching better than y'all responding, but I, I've been known to burst through walls and leap over walls and troops and put on a cape and have a big ass in front of me. But you know what I'm saying, don't you? Here's, here's, here's a uh, rendition by way of definition of, of, of the word complete or the words perfect love. It means loving everyone, those who do good to you and those who do you harm, those who are part of your group or your circle and those who are not part of your group or circle, part of your ethnicity or your nation or your language or whatever. You just love everybody. Hallelujah to Jesus. It's complete love because it encompasses all people. Jesus gives two examples of incomplete love. Verse 46 of our text talks about the tax collectors who love only those who love them. A subset of all the people, special group. And then another negative uh, definition here of uh, incomplete love is the Gentiles who greet only those in their own group. I know these are negatives and I noted that, but, but look, look with me in, uh, at verses 46 and 47 of the text. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do, you not, even, uh, do not even the Gentiles do the same? Again, Jesus is calling us to a higher level. I want to get on a higher level, don't you? Jesus says, I want you to come up a level higher than tax collectors and Gentiles and sinners. You know, Pastor J.C. is a different preacher than I am, Pastor Ben and uh, Pastor David and others. And, and when I was their age, I was, I was looking to people that I could be like. And these guys are effective. I thank God for it. Uh, if Pastor J.C. was not effective and anointed, then I wouldn't feel at, at ease with the decision we made a few years ago. But I... I I'm not ill at ease with it, but I do fight a battle when I'm up here. <laughs> They're young. They're energetic. They got hair. They do not wear socks. <laughs> they don't know how to tuck in their pants. You know, I just give up, man. If you don't like me because I'm not like them, you, it's your loss. I've been married 43 years. There's got to be something my wife likes about me. If she ever leaves me, I am going with her. So I'm trying to read you guys when I preach. And I hear the Holy Ghost say, leave them alone. I got them. Here's two examples of complete love. Verse 45 of our text. The Father gives sunshine to the good and evil, and He gives rain to the just and the unjust. Jesus' day was an, a day of agricultural income. And so the Bible said that when Jesus blessed, or God blessed in this case, He gives sunshine for the crops, He gives rain for the crops, and He blesses them whether they're Jew or Gentile or safe or unsafe, because God's desire is that everybody be blessed. 
That's me. That's me. Amen. Here's this. God feeds even his enemies. Let, let, me, uh, let me point this out here. Uh, again, it goes back to a way of uh, building on the second point. Complete and incomplete love. There was a man who was traveling a road that was very treacherous from the city of Jerusalem to Jericho. The man, about midway of his journey, we perceive, being a Jew, fell among thieves. The thieves beat him. The Bible says, left him half dead, stole his clothes. And what other valuables he have? And the Bible says, not long thereafter, this man bleeding on the dirt on this road, there came a priest and saw him lying there. And the priest just went on the other side. Maybe the priest had a pastoral appointment because he's so important. I told you. Uh, then there became a, a Levite. He is a servant in the house of God. And, and he passed the man who is a fellow Jew, half dead. And maybe because he's a servant, maybe he's thinking, you know what? Uh, this man got attacked and beaten by people, strangers. If I hang around here long enough to help him, I may get beaten. Then there came this man, this Samaritan. And you know your scriptures well enough to know that the Jews and the Samaritans were bitter enemies. Enemies. Not just by verbiage, but by lifestyle. You think, and, and I regret that COVID had to separate us, but their separation was more disastrous and profound than COVID hated each other. The Samaritan gets off his animal. He lifts up the man half dead. He pours oil on his womb or in his wound and he, he uh, wraps, bandages up his places of suffering. Puts him on his animal. Transports him to an inn stays the night with him and makes sure he is helped. He then leaves the next morning with the suffering Jew in the place of his lodging. The Samaritan go to the, the hospitality desk, give some money to the innkeeper, says, this covers our cost now, but if this suffering man takes more money and care, then you tell me when I come back and I'll pay it. That's the difference between incomplete love and complete love. Wow. Uh, here's, here's a third point. This is a Eastern Standard Time here in America, this part of the coast. But as your preacher this morning, I'll be preaching by Pacific Standard Time. You better call up O'Charlie's and call up the steakhouse and say, you'll be there in three hours. <laughs> Do I have any friends in the house? <laughs> Loving enemies is about actions that benefit them. Give me a witness. That's, that's a calling that I need to work on a whole lot. Actions that benefit them. It's easy to do that for your friends. Note this, if you will. 
The first of several actions is Jesus says to bless them. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Bless them. But you don't know what they said. You don't know what they did. You don't know how long they said it and how much of it they said, who they said it to it, where they broadcast it out to that can never come back again. Jesus said, leave that part up to me. It's hard, but bless, uh, bless them. Here's another thought. Uh, do good to them. Amen. Do good to them. Yeah. Did you know that Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Ghost will not give us an assignment that he won't help us fulfill? Do good. Here's what is said in the Old Testament, uh, Exodus 23 and 4. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring him to him again. Wow. Here's another thought. Pray for them. Loving your enemies about actions that benefit them. So pray for them. There sometimes that's all you can do. They won't listen. They won't answer a call. They won't receive, uh, ask forgiveness or they won't receive your apology. And all you can do sometimes is pray for them. Huh? And <laughs> depending on how many enemies you got, you could either have a short prayer session or a 40-day fast. Look at this. Uh, Jesus says to bless them, do good to them, pray for them. Here's, here's an account, and I'm going to try to wrap this up. And uh, as a Pentecostal preacher, I do wrap up sermons at least five times. This will be wrap-up number one. Joseph. Everybody said the name Joseph. Say it again. I want to drink water, that's why. <laughs> you remember this business about doing good, blessing your enemies to their benefit. Joseph, as a boy, maybe, maybe 17 years old, I don't know, maybe freckle-faced, maybe younger, Joseph went to uh, speak to his brothers, 11 of them, on behalf of their father's concern. They put him in a pit. They, uh, they sold him into slavery. They hated him. They were jealous of him because his father seemed to give him more favor than the other 11. And they sold him into Egypt. They, he went into Egypt. He was uh, sold by, uh, into the Potiphar's household as a slave. And Potiphar trusted him so much until Potiphar would travel and leave everything in Joseph's charge. Potiphar's wife attempted to seduce Joseph. Joseph resisted. She cried out rape and he was thrown in jail. He remained in jail for a while. And while he was there, he suffered more. and Things went from bad to worse. But 13 years later, because of his honesty and persecution and trial, not hating his enemies, God elevated Joseph to prime minister of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. And during that time, seven years prior to his being the high one who would lead and distribute the food, he was responsible for accumulating as much food as necessary 
Because after seven years of plenty, there would be seven years of famine. And that took place. And what happens is, Joseph is in charge. His brothers come now to, to pay for food and buy food and get food. And Joseph recognizes his brothers, but they don't recognize him because he's got the Egyptian clothing and garb. They come. They march in before his presence. And Joseph is thinking, <laughs> payday someday. And today is that day. Here is my chance for vindication. I think I will give them bags of uh, seed mixed with dry dung. That's what she was thinking that. No, no, he wasn't thinking that. Sort of a hidden curse. He had a chance to make up for all these years of peril that they put him through. But now God elevated him. And, and God uh, caused Joseph to reveal himself to his brothers. They wept together. They embraced together. He kissed them on the cheek. He took them to the palace and fed them. He introduced them to the Pharaoh. He filled their bags whereby they brought to have grain. He, did, he, he blessed them. He said, go back. Bring my father. Bring all your family. Come here. And when they came back, he gave them some of the choicest land in Egypt. Who could have taken the blessings and keep it to himself and said, I told you so. Can now come and say, hey, just come on in. Wow. You see, God doesn't elevate you or I for payback. You, you didn't get that. God calls us to a higher standard, not because now it's our chance to curse somebody or make somebody suffer or give them back what they deserve. We're never more like Jesus than when we forgive. Uh, closing number two. There's a promise here for those who love their enemies. Amen. Jesus said, I know this is hard. I know it's easier. You know, Jesus said on one occasion, if, uh, if somebody slap you on one cheek, turn the other cheek. Somebody asked, well, what do you do after you get slapped twice? Ball up your fist and knock the daylight out of you. It's not in the Bible, but it sounds inviting, doesn't it? That's not the reward he was talking about. Revenge. Number one, what are the promises here for those who love their enemies? To be like God. To be like God. We can stop right there. Amen. Because we're never like God than when we're doing what God calls us to do. To be like God. To be forgiving, to be kind, to be enduring, to be loving, to be patient, to be everything that we need in our human capacity, in our flesh, that we cannot produce. It begins to happen when we learn to be like God and forgiving. Number two, to be unlike sinners. It seemed like anybody can cuss and swear and hate the Bible and hate church and hate Christianity. It seems like Christianity is getting more persecution in America than any other group or any other uh, what we call religious organizations. But I'll go on anyhow and I'll be a Christian. 
Some people don't like you because of what you believe in the Bible. Some people don't like you because of where you go to church. Somebody don't like you because of, of, your, of your blessings, because you tithe and give. Somebody don't like you because uh, you are not addicted or bound to stuff that others are. And I'm not trying to beat them up, but I'm here to tell you that it is, uh, it, it, it is like an accomplishment to be unlike a sinner. Anybody can be a sinner. Y'all are a hard bunch, buddy. Bet you if it's Ben, y'all be shouting. I'm going to close six times. I love you, and I'm just playing with you. Not you, Ben. Uh, so, to be like God, to be unlike sinners, and to overcome evil. I close with this article that's a true account as it comes to the music that I discovered this week, and I think it'll, it'll be a good way to finish. Some years ago, Collier's Magazine published a story about a little girl in an orphanage. This little girl was quite unattractive, and she had many annoying habits, which resulted in her being shunned by the children and disliked by his staff, the staff. It is told that the director of the orphanage looked for any good excuse to ship her off to some other institution. For some time, it had been suspected that she was writing secret notes to people outside of the orphanage. And then one afternoon, their suspicions were confirmed. One of the children had just reported, I saw her write a note and hide it on a tree near the stone wall. The director hurried to the tree and found the note. Then he passed it silently to his assistant. The note read, To whoever finds this, I love you. Someone else wrote a note and put it on a tree outside the city wall. Of him, him too, it was written. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. So they sought to get rid of him. They took him out to Calvary's hill where they crucified him. They nailed him to a tree. But when men go by there, they find on that tree a note that reads, Whoever finds this note, I love you. Powerful, isn't it? Pastor Ben's going to come in a moment, but I feel inclined to have you stand and pray with you and for you. Would you do that if you can? Stand. Praise God. Amen, church. I mean, if I let you out right now, all you're going to do is go outside and sweat, so we're good? We're good? Bow your heads, please. I'm just going to focus on the thought topic this morning. I'm going to raise my hand because I need to. Now, Pastor Allen, on this subject, this lesson today, I can use some help from the Holy Ghost. I can't overcome this area because there's been a lot of hurt. Well, of course, hurt. And I just need help from the Holy Ghost. 
I'll tell you, Barry, actually, we're not, we're not doing this so we can get our ego pumped. We're doing this because we want to surrender to the Lord. I need some help, Pastor, in this area. Hold up your hand just a moment. Yeah, yeah. I'm holding my, I can hold up both of mine. And all the rest of us, let's everyone lift up both hands to the Lord. Can, can we all do it as a surrender? When you lift up your hands in the house of the God, God it's usually praise and surrender. Pray over why you're raising your hands. You can pray it in your mind while I pray out loud. And Heavenly Father, wash us and cleanse us. The praise team sang that whatever our enemies meant for evil, you turned it for good. Thank you, Jesus. God, I love these people here today, and I believe they love me, but all of us need your love. Because it's hard to love the unlovable. It's hard to forgive the unforgivable. It's hard to be charitable, O oh God, to those who seek to steal from us or hurt us. I rebuke, O oh God, the devil's lies, and I pray the love of God would be shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. Amen, church. God, leaving here today, we shake off the heavy bands of unforgiveness. We shake off the heavy bands of criticism and fault-finding and blame and superstition. We shake it off for the glory of God because we are going up to a higher level that we can be a bigger blessing. Let the church say amen. Put your hands together in thanksgiving to the Lord. Do it heartily. God bless you.